typical that when we study the Bible, our favorite book is the one we're actually studying. <laughs> Romans is certainly one of those that we all seem to gravitate to in our love for the gospel. I was reading this week, and as I was studying for this passage, I was reminded of an illustration from someone trying to explain how someone gets saved. And the illustration went like this. There was a frog one day who fell into a pail of milk. And although the frog tried every way that he could to free himself from the pail of milk, each attempt was, of course, met with the frog's failure to do so. The sides of the pail were much higher than he could get himself over. There was nothing within the liquid by which he could gain leverage to jump out. And so, the frog did the only thing that he could do. He paddled and paddled and paddled and paddled and paddled. And over time, paddling the milk, he was able to churn up a pat of butter. And he churned up a pad by which he could get the necessary leverage to jump to freedom from the bucket. I read that and I thought, that's an illustration of what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 4. The point of that illustration, sadly, is that if you keep paddling, if you paddle and paddle and paddle and paddle and just keep doing your best and trying hard and doing what you can, sooner or later you will be good enough or have enough leverage to make it. As I read that, I thought, well, there you have it. That's the E.F. Hutton mentality that we've been talking about. Remember I said last week that old adage of E.F. Hutton, we earn money the old-fashioned or we, we get our money the old-fashioned way, we earn it. We earn it. It's not like everybody else that gets the free ride, that inherits the money, they get their things some other way. We earn it. That's the frog. He earned his way out by his own efforts. If you just do enough, if you just work hard enough, you too can earn it. That's the idea of that person trying to explain salvation, which, by the way, is wrong. It's a sad, funny illustration for us, but don't buy it. It's wrong. Because it describes the mentality of, sadly, many, even in the church today, concerning the doctrine of salvation. We just paddle hard enough, we can earn it. One man said it this way about the church, quote, We love to sing Amazing Grace. One of our favorite songs in evangelical church. We love to sing that song and yet we think that if we just do our best we'll somehow make it by our own efforts to heaven. He's right. He's right. It's the kind of thinking in our day. It was in fact the conventional kind of thinking even in the Apostle Paul's day. And for them, the supreme example of a person who was in fact saved, was in fact justified before God by way of his paddling, was Abraham. 
Abraham. And as we began our time last week, Paul made it patently clear in verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, then Abraham has something to boast about, but not before God. Certainly, if his efforts by way of his own justification could be used as something to prove he was righteous, then certainly he has something to boast about, but not before God. Why would Abraham have nothing to boast about before God? Because, and here's where I want us to focus our time this morning, and I hope it actually really drives a nail in this idea of justification by works. I want us to focus on what it says in verse 5 again. Because verse 5 says why Abraham could not be justified by works. Because God justifies, you notice right in the middle of verse 5, God justifies the who? The ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Now that is a shocking, paradoxical description of Abraham, which would have stunned every Jew that heard it. God justifies the ungodly. In other words, if Abraham was in fact justified by his efforts, then God does not justify the ungodly but rather those who are godly. And since you Jews and you moralists believe that Abraham is justified by his efforts, then it would be right to say that you also believe that he is godly or he is righteous by his efforts. And if that is therefore the case, then there is no way that Abraham could be justified before God because God justifies the ungodly. Do you see Paul's logic? So which is it, Paul is saying? You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have Abraham justified by his works and yet have a God who justifies the ungodly. Because if Abraham is justified by his efforts, therefore then he is a godly person. And if God justifies the ungodly, then there's no way that Abraham is justified. You cannot have it both ways. If you declare Abraham to be righteous by his efforts, then he cannot boast before God in any way. In fact, he will not be with God at all, if that is the case. Because God only justifies the ungodly. Therefore, if it is true that God only justifies the ungodly, then even Abraham was ungodly. And his efforts are just like yours. They are worthless before God by way of reconciliation. Absolutely worthless. Your efforts will not bring you to God in order to be justified. Let's not then appeal to our opinions. Let's not appeal to what we think should be right and how we think God should act. Let's appeal to the highest authority of all. Let's appeal to what the scriptures say. Because to a Jew, 
To say that God justifies the wicked, which is what ungodly means, was absolutely outrageous. In fact, the Old Testament explicitly makes statements that God will not acquit the guilty. God will in no wise acquit the guilty. Exodus 23 and verse 7. So the very statement seems foolish to most people. God justifying someone who is ungodly? That's absolute ridiculousness. It's the same kind of thing we hear from many people today. right? They compare their own morality with others. And they hold themselves up in juxtaposition to someone else. And they believe that they are savable or that they deserve that God should save them from from his wrath. Because they are better in some moral sense. They are better than someone else who is operating their life. They are better than someone else who does not deserve God's Mercy and kindness because their sin is greater than my sin. No way would they be acceptable to God, they say. It's the same as saying because I haven't killed somebody or done the big sins, whatever those are. My morality is good enough before God. So to say that God justifies the less moral put it in the terms of the worldly vernacular of our day, to say that God would justify someone who's worse than me by way of activity and sinfulness, to say that the Bible says that that God justifies the ungodly, to say that, to say that God does that is absolutely outrageous. That can't be the God who saves people. It's foolishness. So for the religious of Paul's day, how can that be, Paul? How can you say God justifies the ungodly? Abraham was justified by his efforts. How can you say to the moralist of every day today, how can that be that God justifies the ungodly? Certainly I'm worthy of his justifying me. I don't do all those bad things. The answer lies in the doctrine of faith alone. Verse 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now that is one of the strongest statements concerning salvation by faith alone that you will find anywhere in the Scripture. Here is how it's said in chapter 3. Verse 26 says it this way. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So it says in verse 26 that the person who is justified before God, the one who stands uh, cleared of guilt, declared right before God, is the one who has faith in Jesus. And then in verse 5 of chapter 4, it states it in a more offensive way. The one who 
believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. Verse 26 of chapter 3, He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And in verse 5, He justifies the one who is ungodly. And I hope that we see the importance of the distinction that is being made. Because who is the person to whom is justified? Who is the person who is justified before God in the eyes of the Apostle Paul? In the eyes of those whom he's speaking, who does he want them to see is the ungodly person? The one who is justified. First of all, verse 5 says, it's the person who does no work. Do you see that? But to the one who does not work. So, if it is work that we are being rewarded for, if it is morality that we are receiving some kind of gift or payment for, then it is not the grace that we are receiving. It is not a favor from God that we receive that. We actually have earned it. It is what is due us. It is our, as verse 4 says, our wage. To the one who works, his wage is reckoned to him. It's what is due. And so Paul is illustrating the one who does no work. Does no work. In other words, he's a complete failure. In fact, I would like to say he's not the frog swimming in the bucket. He's the frog at the bottom of the bucket who cannot swim. Because he isn't breathing. He's a complete failure. He has no work that meets the standard. And therefore, he has nothing to show for his life. He has nothing to present before God. He is, as we've looked at, the the publican before God saying, Have mercy on me, a sinner. He has nothing to offer to God. So that's the first thing that Paul wants us to see. The one who is justified is the one who has no work. He does nothing. He can do nothing. But then secondly, Paul says that this person who is justified is, as I've said, ungodly. Not only does he have no work, but he, more importantly, is described by God as utterly bankrupt. Completely ungodly. Now, I ask us, to whom is Paul referring to in this passage when he says that? He is referring to Abraham. He is referring to the ones, to the, to the person who the Jews believe to be a very good person. This is Abraham. This is the patriarch of the nation. This is the one whom they said, listen, we are of Abraham. And humanly speaking, even you and I, as we study the scriptures, as we read through the Old Testament, we we would read of Abraham and, and he was in some sense a good person. Humanly speaking. And yet, by nature, he was ungodly. That's shocking. That's shocking to us. He was 
just like all of us by nature. Here's something you have to get right in your mind if it's not right already. You are, prior to salvation, ungodly. We are all ungodly. And so the Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, has been very clear to establish that point to all of us, hasn't he? I find it kind of eerily ironic and humorous that we would love the book of Romans when it points its finger so directly at our heart. Here is who you are. Chapter 3 and verse 20. By the deeds of the law, no flesh is justified in his sight. That's a definition, a description of of the characteristics, the reality of the ungodly. By the deeds of the flesh, no one will be justified in his sight. Chapter chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one makes it. No one can receive God's righteous hand. No one can, can accept anything from God because we all fall short of the reality of who God is in His full glory. We are all, in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. That is our condition. So to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul in verse 5, we are ungodly. We are ungodly. But the moralist, or here in Romans chapter 4, the Jew, they were convinced that they were godly. They were convinced that what they were doing and the religious activities they were carrying out and the duties that they were going through were, in fact, what they needed to be doing to be pleasing to God so that He would and even He should accept them into His kingdom. In fact, we saw this illustrated when we were studying in John's Gospel some time ago back in chapter 8. I want us to go back there for a moment this morning just to help illustrate this point. John chapter 8. The Jews, of course, are arguing as they did regularly. And when I say Jews in the Gospels, I mean primarily it was the religious leaders that Jesus is dealing with, those who were leading the people in their religious fervor. And so they are arguing with Jesus, as they often were. And it says... That they said to him, notice in John chapter 8 verse 33 and following. They answer him because Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so that strikes them as rather odd. And they say, we are Abraham's offspring. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. How do you say that we shall become free? Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. There you go. There's the indictment upon all of humanity to say you're not a slave to sin, to say that you're not completely engulfed in it is to say you've never sinned. That's the height of arrogance. No one would ever even claim that. In fact, 1 John says that if we say we're without sin, we call God a liar. 
So Jesus says to them, If you commit sin, you're a slave to sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son does remain, however, forever. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's offspring. I mean, that's not a small thing for anyone to see. That's, that's easy. I know that you're Abraham's offspring by nature, in your physicalness. You, yet, he says, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You know what he says? He says, you don't seek to kill me because you're, you're not part of the Jewish people and you just don't like me because of that. No, you, you seek to kill me in spite of the fact that you are one of Abraham's children. He says, I, verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Oh, really? Who is that? Because they answer him and they say, Abraham's our father. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? You're absolutely out of your mind. And Jesus says, really? If you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. You want to follow in Abraham's footsteps? Then do what Abraham did. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You want to follow, you want to claim Abraham as your father? You want to have him as the real deal? Then do what he does because Abraham does is not doing what you did and what you're doing now. You're doing the deeds of your father, your real father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father. All right, let's go to a higher level. We're not outside of that. Listen, we don't have some, some weird kind of relationship by way of our heritage. No, we have one father. God is our father. Abraham's father was God. Our father is God. What are you talking about? Jesus says, okay, if, you were, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative. But he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? That's a rhetorical question. Why why is it you don't understand what I'm saying? I'll tell you why. Because you cannot hear my word. Why? Because you are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You see, we're on two different places of the universe. You want to use words that say you know God. You want to use words that say you're with Abraham. And yet at the same time, you want to have nothing to do with me. Those two streets don't connect. Which one of you convicts me of sin, he says. Of course, no one could say anything. If I speak truth, then why do you not believe me? In other words, if I'm lying, that would be sin. Which one of you convicts me of lying? That's what he's saying. Nobody says anything. All you hear is crickets. And yet, Jesus says, then if I'm not sinning, then why don't you believe? In other words, if what I'm saying isn't a lie, therefore it's truth. And if it's truth, how come you don't believe me? He was of God. Here's the words of God. And uh, there he goes again. If, If you are of God and if I'm not lying to you and I'm speaking the truth by your own admission and your own words, then why is it you don't hear me? If you're of God, you would clearly follow his word. Word, here's the reason you don't hear. 
because you're not of God. You see, they thought they were godly. They assumed that they were being pleasing to God by way of their actions in life. We're doing the right thing, but Jesus says, oh, no, 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 not true at all. You are, in fact, ungodly, even though you have convinced yourself you're godly by your own morality. In effect, he's saying the God that you are serving is a self-manufactured God. And when they were confronted with that truth, they hated it all the more. They hated the truth. They hated the truth. Jesus was in effect telling them that they could not ever be good enough to be acceptable to God. And they resented it. When they were told they needed to believe upon Him for their salvation, those very words were a personal insult to their self-righteousness. How dare you tell me God would not accept me. That's what it means to be ungodly. That's what it means to be wicked. To refuse to embrace Jesus Christ by faith alone. You want a definition of ungodliness? You want a definition of wickedness? Reject Jesus Christ. And we are all by nature born into that condition. Paul says... In Romans chapter 4, Abraham was no different. Abraham was no different. God justifies the ungodly. And if Abraham is justified, then he too was ungodly. And therefore he was justified the same way all others are justified. By faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's the only way. There is no other way. So justification then is solely the act of God upon the ungodly. And it comes by means of or through the agency of faith alone. So let's not forget that reality. God justifies the ungodly. He never justifies the godly. He justifies the ungodly of which Abraham was and all of us prior to salvation are. That's the first thing I want us to get in our minds clear this morning. But as I was thinking about this entire principle, I was struck by the reality of another one that this dismantles. This, another heresy within the evangelical church at large in which this doctrine dismantles. Because I believe it's necessary to think of it this way because of the false teaching concerning foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Chapter 4, verse 5 says that God, we believe in Him who justifies the ungodly. In Romans, we will hear teaching concerning the doctrine of foreknowledge. Paul addresses the subject um, in some ways breezing over it because 
he assumes, or there's the assumption in, in the Jewish mindset, at least, that they would understand what that actually means and not pervert the understanding of that. Because in Romans chapter 8, we have that, that what some have identified as this golden link, this chain of realities for those who are justified by God. And you see them beginning in verse 29 of chapter 8. For whom he foreknew, that's the idea of foreknowledge, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there you have the introduction to this idea of foreknowledge. And many have attempted to define foreknowledge as God in his sovereign omniscience looking down through the annals of future history. And from time past, looking at all who would ever be created before it ever ends. Because in God's economy, God is not bound by time. It's an ever-present now. And so God looks down through history, as they say, from time past, as he looks into the future. And he notices all those who would believe in him. And he says, oh, that's great. Based upon their action of their belief, therefore God saves them. That's how some define foreknowledge. If that is correct, then Paul's words in chapter 4 and verse 5 are a lie. And the Holy Spirit is not who the Holy Spirit says he is. The Holy Spirit did not superintend the writing of scriptures. The Holy Spirit does not inspire anyone to do that if God's foreknowledge is a looking down through future history and seeing who would believe in him and based on that, therefore justify them. The words of the Apostle Paul would be an absolute lie. Because if God looks into the future and justifies those who will eventually come to him by their own efforts, then he is simply giving them what is due to them, like Romans chapter 4, verse 4 says. It is not a grace, it is what's due them, and justifying them would be justifying the godly. Those who actually do seek after God. And yet Paul says in chapter 3 that no one seeks after God. Which is in fact quoting from Psalm 53. There is no one who seeks after God. No one who does good. And so this statement by Paul. Ultimately by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul. Cannot be true if it says... God justifies the ungodly if, in fact, God, by foreknowledge, by that definition, looks through history and justifies those who would, in fact, believe in him. The ungodly is the wicked. Just like in John 8, those who are wicked reject Jesus Christ. So, because God justifies the ungodly, that means that foreknowledge must not mean a previewing of who would believe in Jesus. That's not what foreknowledge means. If God justifies the ungodly, as the Spirit gave us here, and as it clearly shows in other places of Scripture, if that's the case, then foreknowledge cannot mean a previewing through future in order to see who would believe and thereby justifying them, but rather... 
foreknowledge must mean a preactive love of God upon those who do not deserve it at all. A foreloving that God places his love upon those whom he will save and he predestines them to salvation. He calls them to salvation and he justifies them. And so he not only justifies the ungodly, but he can do that because of his foreloving them through Jesus Christ. This is the way Abraham was saved. God foreloved Abraham through the coming of Jesus Christ. God is foreloving us based upon Jesus Christ coming and dying. It's the same. It's the same one through which all ungodly are justified. And so if this verse does not make us see the true meaning of justification by faith alone, beloved, nothing will. I think if we don't get in our minds this reality right here in verse 5, if we don't have that locked down and we don't see it clearly, then I'm not sure anything will because if you won't believe what God says, then what are you going to believe? God imputes, that's what it says here, but to the one who does not work but believes faith in him who justifies the ungodly, so they're not working and they are ungodly, that faith is reckoned as righteousness. That, that's imputing. God reckons his righteousness to the ungodly. You notice it does not say that God justifies those now as if they are righteous already. Do you notice that? They do no work, they are ungodly, and they are not righteous at all. It does not say he reckons to them because they were righteous already. No, no, no. God places into the spiritual account of a bankrupt sinner the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's imputation, reckoning. And because he does that through the agency of faith, he now regards them as righteous. That's a very important distinction. He regards them as righteous. We, we sing a hymn in this church. It's become a favorite of many, many of us. We got introduced to it, I think, when we got our new hymnals. It's called what? His Robes for Mine. It's number 181 in our new hymnal. Just listen to the words. I just want to read a couple of the verses to us. His robes for mine. That's, that's a statement of imputation. His robes for mine. There's an exchange going on. His robes for mine. A wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed, and thus the Father's pleased. 
Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, tis done. Sin's wages paid, propitiation won. What, what wonderful words. The writer of that hymn got it. They understood this doctrine. They, they, they realized the full orb of this doctrine and all that it's speaking to. It isn't simply that we stand right before God. It's the reality of imputation involved in all of that. And so the implication and truth from Paul is that Abraham was justified by faith because God in his grace and mercy imputed the righteousness of Christ to come to Abraham's account. Because Abraham was ungodly. The righteous Jews in their own mind, the moralists of the day, hate that as much as Christ says, you must follow me because I'm the truth. They hate that. No way. I'll I'll say I believe in God. We are God's children, just like the Pharisees said to Jesus. Oh, we believe in God. God is our Father. No, not if you hate Jesus Christ. Not if you don't follow Jesus Christ. Oh, you can go through all kinds of religious rituals. You can do all kinds of things. You can come to a church day in and day out. You can say all kinds of prayers you want to say. You can follow after whatever religious person tells you. But if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, listen, get it clear. You do not have a relationship with God other than this. You are his enemy. And one day his wrath will be abiding on you completely. You are still ungodly. Jesus Christ dies for no one else except the ungodly. In fact, Paul's going to say that, chapter 5. For while we were still helpless, verse 6, at the right time Christ died for those who were really good people. He's going to say that. Christ died for the ungodly. You know what Paul's saying? Christ died for those whom God justifies and no one else. Don't think that that Christ's righteousness is going to be applied to your account if you want nothing to do with Jesus Christ and follow after Him. His righteousness will not apply to you at all. You can go with all of your religious baggage. You can go with all of your righteousness of your own. and You can stand before God and God will say those frightful words. Away from me, you worker of iniquity. So if Abraham is justified, it had to be without works. And then Paul goes another step and he says, and it was the same for David. He just cut off two of the three legs on a Jewish stool. And now he's kicking the other one out from under him. David was saved the same way. And verse 6 through 8 clearly says that just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Here's what David says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, no Jew could rightly claim that David was a man whose life was filled with works that might justify him before God. 
No David, no, no Jew could rightly say that. And no human today could rightly say with actual reality that their life has works that would justify them before God. No one can really say that because we all have sin. David's life was filled with it. The whole Jewish nation was fully aware of the sin of David. It was part of their history. It was written in the history books of the kings. Some may try to say that it's unfair to label Abraham as ungodly. Some might say, well, we just disagree with you, Abraham. No way, I'm not going to accept that. Some might try to say that about their own life. But the precedent of God justifying the ungodly is even more clearly seen in the life of David. David was clearly ungodly. And if any Jew found fault with Paul, that saying that justification was by faith when it came to Abraham, it certainly wouldn't carry any weight when it came to David. That argument would be a moot point. Righteousness through faith was the only basis for righteousness that David knew. And Paul is referring to that in verses 6 through 8. And it's interesting how Paul states the quote here from Psalm 32. Because David says it. Paul quotes David and David says it from a a negative way or from the, the, the less pretty way, if you will. David says, how blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Or, blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Impute sin. That's how David puts it. Blessed means truly happy. So truly happy is this person. So here is that person who really knows true happiness in all of life. Not only life just here in the temporal world, but life up into eternity. Here is the blessed person. The one who is actually right with God. The one whose sin is forgiven. The one whose sin is covered, David says. In other words, something has been put over the sin He's the one, David says, to whom the Lord does not impute sin. In other words, sin, their their sin is not accounted to them. Their sin is not reckoned to them. So here we have someone who has committed sin. How can that person be blessed? How can that person be truly happy in life? They've committed sin. They're guilty of a crime. An eternal crime. And the only answer for that is though they have sin and are guilty of that sin, God will not put down that sin to their spiritual account. God has every right to do it. God has every right to hold them accountable to put that sin down. He has every right to keep a record of their sin forever into eternity, but David says, happy is the man to whom God does not reckon his sin. In other words, God leaves them out. He covers them. He takes care of them. He forgives them. So David, in Psalm 32, sees that from the, that's the only way I can describe it, from the negative side. 
the sin isn't accounted, but Paul sees it from the positive side. Paul is describing it in a positive way. Notice what he says in verse 6. As David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons what? Righteousness. See, David says, blessed is the man whom the Lord will not take into account his sin. Paul says, blessed is the man whom God gives righteousness. This is the positive side of it all. David's looking at it from what isn't added to him, and Paul is interpreting the words of David in a positive way and telling telling us what David really means by that. And David means that righteousness is actually reckoned to your account. It isn't that that God just doesn't look to your sin. It's that God gives you something. Why is that so important? Why is the explanation of both David's perspective and Paul's perspective so important? Like I just said, it's important because God does not simply forgive our sin in salvation. He doesn't stop with that. It's great when that happens, obviously. Paul says that's, that's part of the blessing, but we are not left there with just God forgiving our sins. Praise God. God goes all the way in the equation and he imputes to us the very righteousness we need to stand before him. So he gets rid of, he covers completely the sin and gives us what we need in order to stand before him. At the very least, David needed forgiveness but he didn't simply just need forgiveness David needed God's righteousness we don't just need forgiveness we need righteousness and the exercise of David's sinfulness at the very least resulted in his acting out Coveting of another man's wife, actual adultery with that man's wife, and then murder of that man's wife, at the very least. Under the Old Testament system, there was no provision under the law whereby David could offer any sacrifice that might mediate his sin. There was none. You can scour the law all you want. There's no sense in which in the law there was a provision by which David could somehow have his sin covered for a time. That's why I read Psalm 51 this morning. That's why David says in Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 66, 2, to this one I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. David knew he was in a hopeless position before God. All he could do was beg for God's mercy upon him. That's what David did in Psalm 51. He just begs for God's mercy. In other words, for our own condition to have our own sin forgiven is to have the righteousness of God imputed to us. 
You realize that? To have your sin forgiven is to have the imputed righteousness of God given to you. Why? Because if you don't have the righteousness, you have no forgiveness. You can't have forgiveness without the righteousness. And all of that is through the agency of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So here we are. Every person in this room, here we are. Sinners in God's sight. And yet, when the exercise of faith enters the equation, it's a gift from God. When the exercise of faith enters and we believe what God has spoken concerning His Son, Right? We believe him who justifies the ungodly. We believe what God said concerning his son. That faith is reckoned to us as righteousness. Not because it was came from us. It wasn't produced by us. Our sin debt is canceled. It's covered by God. He throws our sin behind him and he never looks at it again. Oh, glorious thought. Glorious thought. I don't think I get past a half a second before I continue to bring up my own sin before my eyes. God doesn't do that. We're completely delivered from it. We are completely delivered from the guilt of it, from the penalty of it, and in our spiritual account is no longer sin or guilt that comes with it. In our spiritual account is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, His Son. Not only does that mean you cannot sin your way or, or that you can sin your way out of salvation, you can't do that. But it means you won't want to sin your way out of salvation. Your desire will be for Jesus Christ. This is always how God deals with sin. It's always how He deals with it. It's how it was with Abraham. It's how it is with David. It's how it is with us. Can't get away from it. Justification is by faith alone. You cannot get around that. How does that happen? How does that justification happen? By means of reckoning. By means of imputation. Imputation. Transaction. God takes our sin, places it on Christ, and takes the righteousness of Christ and gives it to our account. Imputation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 through 21. Here's how Paul said it. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there's salvation, reconciliation, imputation, justification, the glorious realities that God has given us through the process by which He saves us. God takes our sin 
And instead of imputing it to our account, he imputes, he puts it in his son's account. And he puts our sin on him. He punishes him for it. The cross of Calvary. That's how we're saved. That's how we're reconciled to God. So the Christian is the one who, having realized that truth, does not do anything to save himself. He can't do anything. You get to glory, you speak to Abraham, you say, Abraham, how are you saved? He's going to say the same way you were. David, how are you saved? The same way you were. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. If it isn't faith alone, then you don't understand the doctrine of justification. And maybe we just need to go back to verse 1 again and start again and do it all over again. The E.F. Hutton mentality never saves anybody. That's the reality. We'll come back tonight for more out of the Gospel of John. You just can't get around the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for justification by faith alone. Oh, we're so glad you didn't leave it up to us because certainly and surely we could have never have saved ourselves. And in fact, even if you had given us the opportunity to be able to do that, we would have certainly messed that up. We mess it all up. Sin hates you because sin is born in the heart of evil. Lord, help us run from any temptation to go against what you have called us to be as your children. What you have equipped us to be by faith in Jesus Christ, giving us the spirit that we might submit to your word and do what you have asked of us so that your name is glorified, not so that we earn anything. Thank you for the example of Abraham. Thank you for the clear-cut reality that Abraham, too, was ungodly just like the rest of us. Thank you for Paul's clear, definitive argumentation that just dismantles all the foolishness. Lord, help us to to be clear on these things so that we never get into that, that weird kind of idea where somehow by our efforts we are earning your pleasure, pleasure by way which we are justified. We could never be there. Justification is simply that, the declaration, the forensic reality of declaration that you, that we are now righteous in your eyes. And now by way of sanctification, you are making us in a practical sense, in in the outworking of our life, like your son, Jesus Christ, who always said, not my will, but your will be done. May we do the same in obedience to you, that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray.